All right, so we are live. Do um, I don't see the Rick. I don't see the um. Oh, that's because I'm not sharing. That's my fault. Um. See, I'm blaming Rick, and I didn't even set up properly. There we go. How you doing, Lil? <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll uh, we'll, we'll save it for later then. All right. It's good to see you both. Absolutely. Okay, well, I'm going to open with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this new day, and we thank you that, that we can be here today. And I know some of us, Lord, have, it's been quite a lot to get here today, and um, but here we are. So I pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we continue to read through the, the book of Romans, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would give us strength, and that you would help us to grow. So hear our prayer now in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we were talking last week, um, I have all the things saved, there we go. Last week, we continued to look at Romans 5, and we're going to get into Romans 6 today. We talked about the Romans, and we talked about Adam. And we talked about a lot of things we've been building throughout the whole course. Let's see. We talked about both the, let's, let's call it our redemption and our corruption. We talked about Adam and all of creation. And we talked about Christ and all of creation. So the end of chapter 5 ends with, this for just as um for just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners so that through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous now the law came in as a side issue in order that the trespass could increase but where sin increased Grace was present in greater abundance. Now, this phrase is key for what we're about to see at the beginning of chapter 6. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness. Now, if you're at 11 o'clock, we're going to hear a lot more about that word righteousness. To eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, Paul's use of the word eternal life is very interesting because in the Gospels, it's the kingdom of God or heaven. In John, it's eternal life. And in Paul, it's in Christ. And so Paul, every now and then, Paul will use kingdom. But here is one of these rare examples that Paul uses eternal life. Okay, now into chapter 6. 
What therefore shall we say? Shall we continue to sin in order that grace may increase? Now, again, part of the reason I backed up is Paul, at the end of the chapter, enters into this idea that the law has an interesting effect on all of us. Do you remember last week I used the illustration of a box? I said, if I have a box and it's sitting next to me, and I, the only thing I tell you about the box is don't look inside of it. Pretty quickly, people are going to start focusing on that box. And they're going to wonder about that box. And they're going to obsess about that box. And some people are going to open that box just because I told them not to. And this is a dynamic in human beings. And when we talk about the law, the law has this power. If the, if the civil authorities put speed limit signs up, some people are going to look at those speed limit signs and they're going to want to drive faster than the speed limit just because the limit is posted. This is part of our nature. And so at the end of chapter five, Paul gets into this dynamic where law has an impact on us that on one hand has a positive impact. So what are the positive impacts of the law? Law is good for ignorant people. Maybe they're in a car and they're driving on the highway and they don't know how fast they should drive. You know, often on the highway, if you go around a curve, they have these yellow signs and the speed limit is slower on the curve. So in that sense, the law is a very positive thing because it says, chances are, if you want to make this curve and stay on the road, you should reduce your speed somewhere around here. And now I've, you know, we drive around in mountainous California sometimes and the speed limit on that curve is maybe 30, and depending on the car I'm in, or especially if you're in a truck that's kind of wobbly, you should go all the way down to 30. If you're maybe driving in a car that has better sport handling, you can do the curve at 40. Maybe if you're in a motorcycle, you can do the curve at 45 or 50. So it depends a lot on what car and what vehicle you're in, but there the law says do 30. So that's a very positive use of the law because the law informs us, it helps us. If you obey the speed limits on roads and don't take them too literally, because as they say, when we get our valley fog, they're like, you know, the speed limit might be 65, but if it's foggy, you should reduce way down, even though there's no signs. That's wisdom. So the law is very positive and can inform can correct. Laws are, laws are very important because let's say you have an unruly neighbor and they're playing their music all hours of the night. They're not keeping their property up. Um, code enforcement will come by and enforce the code. So I think we are familiar with the positive senses of the law. But Paul here notes that there are what, what sin and law do together. Sin can do things with law that it couldn't do without law. And, and you see this sometimes, lawyers will sometimes have a reputation, right? 
How do you, you know, there's all these lawyer jokes. How do you know when a lawyer is lying? Anybody know that joke? His lips are moving. Um, so part of what happens is that on one hand, law is good. We need law. It can be very beneficial. It can be very informative. But law creates within it a capacity for even more evil. Because evil is one thing. Law plus evil becomes, can become even worse. So probably the only thing worse than no law is bad law, right? Because no law, everything's just sort of chaotic. Bad law, now suddenly evil plus law can do even more bad. And so that's the point that Paul is making. Um, law in the hands of evil people. I'll say it that way. It doesn't even have to be bad law or evil law. But law in the hands of evil people can do even more damage than the absence of law. And I think that's a lot of what Paul is saying here at the end of chapter 5. Now, the law came in as a side issue in order that trespass could increase, but where sin increased, grace was present in greater abundance. Now, I have now a few Jewish um, friends who watch these studies carefully, and so they pay a lot of attention to these studies because I'm talking about Jews and Greeks. And let's, let's think then about what Paul says there. Now, now, one way to sort of understand the logic of the Bible is, in many ways, the layers of the Bible attend to a lot of our common sense approaches to evil. One of the easiest common sense approaches to evil works like this. There are good people and there are bad people. And we're going to separate humanity into good people and bad people. Then suddenly we get the dream. The world could be perfect if we got rid of all the bad people and only had the good. Now, there's a degree to which this is true. And that's why prisons work. If you've got someone in your neighborhood who is breaking into houses, um, assaulting people, the neighborhood is improved when the police come, take this person, it's usually a man, and put him into jail. Because this individual was causing a lot of problems in the neighborhood. So this works. But what's the problem with this strategy if pushed to its logical conclusion? Someone comes along and says, you're a good person, but you've got some bad things in you. Is that true? Everyone's got some good and some bad in them. So when someone comes along and decides, well, we're just going to have, we're going to get rid of all the bad people. We're going to marginalize them. We're going to incarcerate them. We're going to try to retrain them. Whatever strategy you have, 
the problem always comes because you have human beings deciding who the good and bad people are. So let's push the, let's push the thought experiment a little bit further. What if God got to choose between the good and bad people? And what if, let's say, let's say um, you have the good and the bad, and you recognize that there's there's good in there's good and bad in everyone's heart. Sometimes there's a little bit of good and a lot of bad. Sometimes there's a lot of good and a little bit of bad. And so we're gonna sort of cut the line someplace and say, we're going to have the better. And so that's usually what we do with jail and the law, because, well, you're not going to go to jail right away for the speed, breaking the speed limit. You'll get a speeding ticket. Okay, that's good. We don't want to throw everybody in jail for everything. Uh, you get warnings, you get fines. Um, you don't want to throw everybody in jail for everything. You want to sort of figure out where jail is appropriate, where it isn't. Because you notice that there's good and bad in lots of different people. What if you took all of humanity and said, we're going to only save the best person? I mean, think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham says to the Lord, would you for the sake of 50 people spare the city? Yeah, I'll spare it for the sake of 50 people. How about for 40 people? Yeah, I'll spare it for the... Abraham doesn't dare go below 10, okay? Um, but what if God looked around the world, had regret because the world was filled with evil and violence, what people were doing to each other, and finally said, I want to destroy it. Oh, okay. That's, but, then, but then you're going to... Then you have Abraham's argument. Are you going to destroy the good with the bad? And so God says, I'll tell you what. I'll save one man, and because it might be so traumatic to kill this one man's family, I'll save this one man and his wife and his three sons and their wives. You ever hear a Bible story about this? Noah. I'm going to wipe out the whole world. Now, the animals, it's not really their fault because the animals don't know good from evil. None of them nibbling at the tree in the garden. The animals just do what animals do. But people should know better. So I'm going to save one man, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, and the animals of the world, and I'm going to wipe out the rest. So that's the story of the flood. Did it work? Why not? That's right. Even the best man in the world, even if you whittled humanity down to just one man, this good versus evil thing, good people and bad people, doesn't work. Okay. So that's, that's trial one. Trial of Noah. Let's, ta let's try trial two. The law. So God rescues the children of Israel from Egypt. You know, they don't rescue themselves. I mean, that's abundantly clear. Noah was going to be a would-be rescuer. That's a total failure. Kills the Egyptian. Hears that, you know, there's a bounty on his head. 
runs out into the wilderness. God finally leaves him in the wilderness for 40 years, gets his attention with a burning bush, and says, Moses, I'm going to rescue the children of Israel, and you're going to be their leader. Moses tries all kinds of ways to not do it. God says, Moses, or sorry, Moses, I'm not taking no for an answer. All right. So I can't talk. Okay. Well, Aaron's got a slick tongue. Too little, too slick sometimes, like with the golden calf thing. Aaron's got a slick tongue. You can work with Aaron. And you'll be like God, and Aaron will be like your prophet, and you're gonna go and you're gonna go in there. Good morning. How are you, Carol? You're here. Yeah, you made it. How are you, Carmen? All right. <laughs> All right. So God rescues. So then there's plagues, and then there's the Red Sea crossing, and then there's drowning Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea, and then they get out to Sinai, and you know. Here's the problem with Israel, and this is well known. It's one thing to take Israel out of Egypt. It's a whole nother thing to get Egypt out of Israel. And that's really what the story from Exodus to Deuteronomy is about. It's about getting Egypt out of Israel. And so then we think, well, how, how would we get Egypt out of Israel? I think, well, maybe talk to them. Okay, that's good. There should be a lot of talking. Explain to Israel all the bad things about Egypt. And the thing is, you can get a whole bunch of people in the room and you can talk at them. And I know this because I'm a preacher, because it's my job to get people in the room and talk at them. You know what? It, it does, it's not no good. It doesn't do any help, but it never gets as much as we want. And all of you here are mothers. I'm the only father in the room right now. All of you here are mothers. And you know what mothers learn? You can sit there and tell your kids what to do. But guess what? You, they don't listen so good. So then you think, I'll reason with them. Well, have you ever reasoned with a two-year-old? Yes, how well does that work? It doesn't work at all. That's right. You can't reason with a toddler. Once they get into grade school, they can reason a little bit more, but then they become teenagers, and for the next 20 years, you can't reason with them either. And so what every mother of a two-year-old figures out is, you know what? I'm going to make her, well, the first thing, I, I remember the looks on my children's faces when they were very young. They're like a little, like between one and two usually. When they first learn what the word no means. Yeah, then, they, then they, they found this magic word and they try to use it and they discover, no, that doesn't work the way you thought it would. You tell no to mommy. Um, now, mommy doesn't always listen to no. Yeah, but you didn't either. But so you say no to them and their eyes get wide. And suddenly there's no in the world. But mommy knows very well that first you use it and then they kind of pull back. But then you say no and guess what? 
They do it anyway. And then mommy learns, ah, you know what follows no? The, the timeout, the slap on the wrist. Suddenly, no plus a slap. Oh, no plus slap works better than no without slap. And very quickly, the child and the mother, they begin to set up a relationship and the child learns when mom says no, <laughs> that's right. They, they begin to figure out that, you know, the good mom means business. And when mom says no dessert, if you don't eat your vegetables, guess what? The good mom, kid doesn't eat their vegetables. The, mom, the kid's trying the mom. The mom's like, you've been on this world five years. You're going to try me? <laughs> nope, you're not getting dessert. And I'll give you that. You can, we're all done with dinner. That plate is sitting there. Those vegetables are staring you in the face. Now eat up those vegetables. I'll happily give you that ice cream cone. And, and so, you know, very quickly they learn. And so here, law is a good thing because the kid learns if you don't eat the healthy parts of the meal, you don't get the treat. If you don't get good grades in school and behave yourself, you don't get the gift or the prize or the approval because the approval is actually worth far more than the little prizes they dole out. We had in our house, we had an entire economy running with our five children with stickers. <laughs> Clean your room, you get a sticker. That worked really well for four of our kids. Anyone guess which kid it didn't work so well with? No, Ben, Ben, Ben was easy. No, no, the youngest, the youngest was quite easy. It was Jared. Jared was the hardest one to motivate. Yeah, isn't that funny? Um, and, you know, we just had, we gamified all sorts of things. And kids were scooping up dog poop, cleaning up their toys, emptying the dishes. I mean, because we had five little kids and we knew very quickly, if we didn't have child labor in the home, things were not going to be in order. And, and quite frankly, now that I see my kids today, those lessons that they learned when they were young, they are diligent, law-abiding, industrious young adults now. Now, that doesn't mean they don't struggle sometimes, you know? You go to college and it's like, you can have all that fun, but that paper is going to come due. And so, you know, they got to learn that in college, and they do. So law is a good thing. And, and through law, those kids learn. So, okay, God takes Israel out of Egypt, and now he's got to get Egypt out of Israel. And so he comes down on Sinai. And if you read Exodus 19 and 20, God says, get the people out here. I'm going to give them a show on Sinai. And sort of like a divine mother, I'm going to lay down the law and I'm going to scare them. And I'm going to scare them into obedience. It's, Exodus 19 practically says that. I'm going to scare them into obedience. And again, this is not a bad thing. 
It's how each one of us grows up into responsible, law-abiding, industrious adults, at least most of us. There's some people that they're incorrigible and it doesn't work at all with. But the law is a good thing. But the law is limited. What's the limit of the law? I'm driving down the highway. You know, one of the things that we've been seeing in cars for the last 30 years Everyone's worried about fuel economy, yeah, but you know what they're you know what really sells cars? Horsepower, performance. And so now we're driving cars that, you know, are like the muscle cars that were in the 60s, but these are just the these are just the cars that you can buy. They've got big powerful engines in them. You know, my little my little Mazda, it's got a four-cylinder in it, but boy, that car can move. Go down that just just had this about a month ago, I went for my walk out on the levee to get my exercise. I was feeling good, put some nice music in there, drove down Pocket Road, turned onto this stretch of Freeport right here between Meadowview and Florin. You know what there isn't in that whole stretch of road? There's, there's no turns, there's no lights, there's no stop signs. It's just one pristine four lane. And I get in that road. I've got the sunroof open. It's kind of warm. I was just exercising. I got the music on. And what did I do? I enjoyed my nice little red car right up that road. I was doing, I was doing 65 before you could blink. You know what was over here by Smart and Final? Not the highway patrol, that little unit that Sacramento PD has. They're always on their motorcycles, you know. There he's sitting with his radar gun. It's like, ugh. And so what did I do? Tried to slow down. Not, not, not. It was too late. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not even up to them yet. And the, you know, the lights are going and it's like, oh. Because it's 50. I know it's 50. I didn't know how fast I was going. Pulled me over. Do you know how fast you're going? I do not, sir, but I'm quite sure I was speeding. <laughs> so he told me how fast I was going. And then he looked up my record and everything. And I was very fortunate. He said, I'm going to give you a warning next time you drive on this road. And, and the truth is, now, every time I drive up on this road, I think, eh, it's a fun road, but I'm going to slow down. And I've been good. I've been good. But what made me be good? Because I speed on that road a lot. The threat of having to pay a fine, getting a point on my license, having my insurance go up. If none of those threats were there, who knows how fast I'd drive on that little road. I like that road. You just hit that road and it's like a drag strip. Whoosh. And my car, I like my little car. It goes, you know, kick it into sport mode and see how fast you can go. The law works because of threat because of enforcement. And that's okay. Again, 
I live in the city. There's somebody moved into the neighborhood a while ago, uh, not too long ago, and they really like mariachi music. And not every night, but every now and then, on a weekend night, they have loudspeakers. They're not right next door. There's a few houses down. But even with the house all closed up, you know, I don't have anything against mariachi music. I just don't like it loud at one or two in the morning. <laughs> and what do I think about? Should I call the cops? Surely the people living next door must be going crazier than I am. But it only works with enforcement. And what that means is the law doesn't really change my heart. What the law does is restrains my behavior. And that's a good thing. But what I really need is what I'm going to talk about at 11 o'clock, which is righteousness. That's the thing that, that's inside the good cop that the corrupt cop lacks. And the, but just as I said before, the corrupt cop, why is the corrupt cop more powerful than just the jerk who lives next door? Yes. Corruption plus law is worse than just corruption because it's got the power of the law. And so, hmm, people say to me, they say, you know how to make the world better? Separate the good people from the bad people. And I think, yeah, you know, the world is better. Our nation is better because we have jails and people who, if they lived in our neighborhood, quite frankly, without the jail, the neighbors would probably finally at some point get sick of it and kill him because that's what happened before incarceration. Incarceration is a lesser measure than vigilante justice. Okay, so yeah, there are good and bad people, generally speaking, and making sure that the good people are running things more than the bad people, yeah, a lot better. But as a total fix, doesn't work. Then people are like, well, let's get really good laws and enforce them. Yeah, that's good. Every two-year-old gets better because of law enforcement. Every city is better because of law enforcement. I want to live in a city where there is law enforcement. I want to live in a city where there are courts. And, and what's even more, I want to live in a city where there are good people who work in law enforcement and good judges and good lawyers and everybody is sort of doing the right thing, it's better than chaos. But these systems, too, can be corrupted. And in fact, the whole story of Israel, so again, who better to judge between the good and the bad? God. God makes the best choice in the world, and Noah gets off the ark, plants a vineyard, curses his son, Within a number of generations, you're at the Tower of Babel. Didn't fix the world. All right. Well, let's take a really great for people, people of a promise. Let's take them out of Egypt. Let's send them in the desert. Let's retrain them. Because, you know, all that whole desert wandering story is about training, right? So, 
So there's snakes, there's plagues, there's lack of water. The whole desert story is about training in the law. And they get all the way up to the promised land, right? And you'd think they're out in the desert for like two years. So you got to read the story carefully. They're out in the desert for like two, two and a half years. They've been given the law. They've had training, um, all of this stuff. They get to the edge of the promised land. And God says, send in 12 spies. So they send in the spies. Spies come back. Ten of the spies say what? There's giants in the land. We can't take this land. There's cities. We were like grasshoppers before them. They made us feel small. Two of the spies said, hey, wait a minute. Did you see how our God worked over superpower Egypt? Is, you know, these, these Canaanites, these little Canaanite groups, they're like banana republics here compared to the United States. God worked over Egypt. This, this Canaan thing, that won't be any problem for him at all. But the 10, people listened to the 10, and then what did they do in the desert? Oh, God took us out here to die. And God said, oh, oh, was that what you wanted? Okay, well, let's turn ourselves right back around and let's go out into the desert. You, you, you're worried about your children dying in Canaan? Guess what? Your children are going to see Canaan. But all of you who had no faith, 40 years in the wilderness and you're all going to die. That's the story of the book of Numbers. You're all going to die. And at the end, God is going to raise up from your children a new people who's going to take the land. So that's what happens. 40 years later, who's at the head of Who's at the head of the people then? Not Moses anymore, right? But who? Joshua. Where was Joshua? He was one of those two spies that said, we can go into the land. We saw what God did in Egypt. Let's go get it. And so this time the Lord says, Joshua, you're the man. We're going to go in there. Well, started out pretty well, right? But another generation passes and what happens? Ah, Joshua says, finish taking the land. Did they? You, you know, the whole story of Jericho really bothers people, and rightly so, because the whole story of Jericho basically says that Canaan is a microcosm of what happens to Egypt, because what God, how God conquers Jericho is just like what he does with Egypt. He says, y'all march around this thing, and I'm going to take the, down the walls, but because I win the battle, you yourselves may not profit from this conquest. And Jericho is a prize. So they want to go in and they want to take the gold and the clothing and the women and children. God says, nope, you didn't, you didn't pay for any of this. This belongs to me. The rest of the land you can benefit from, but this belongs to me. What happens? Achan, Ai, read the book of Joshua. It's all in there. So, and this cycle goes on and on and on and on and on. And God gives them the law, the covenant, but 
What's the problem with Israel? It's the same problem in all of us. It's the same problem with me speeding on Freeport Boulevard. I know the speed limit. Speed limit's 50. I knew it before I sped. But you know what I wanted? I was feeling good, had tunes on in the car, had the sunroof open, the sun was out, feeling happy. You know, enjoyed my little red car. It was a very gracious cop. We've got that in our heart. And so this strategy for fixing the world, the law, it won't get you there. We can't live without it, but it won't get you there. There needs to be something more. And what Paul is saying in the book of Romans is all the way back in the story, there are clues to something more. And you can see it in the world. So that little two-year-old that all of you discipline, and you continue to discipline that child through grade school into high school, the goal of that, now none of your children are perfect. I hope you're not insulted by me saying that. You probably know that better than I do. Guess what? None of my children are perfect either. <laughs> not a one. I love them all to death. They're wonderful young adults, but they're not perfect. And there are times that I just shake my head because it's like, you don't listen to wisdom. You won't listen now. I think you'll learn it though. Well, how do we usually learn wisdom? Experience. The hard way. <laughs> but Paul says in Romans, all the way back into Abraham, there are clues into this transformation because, you know, my children no longer fear me like they did when they were little. They have adult jobs. They're not dependent on me for money. Um, they, don't, they don't fear me at all. There's they don't think I'm going to harm them because I never have, at least not in an explicit, um, intentional way. I, you know, my defaults and lack of character and parenting, I'm sure, have bound them in one way or another, like happens with everyone. But they don't fear me and they don't obey me. But notice the fourth commandment honor your father and mother. But my children do honor me. And they honor me by, they showed up for holidays. And they give me little gifts. And the gifts, you know, I tell them every year, don't give me anything. I don't need anything. But they want to give me a little something. So they give me a little something just to show that they love me. So they honor me. And to the degree that they honor me, maybe whatever wisdom I've gathered in my life, they'll be able to benefit from. Who knows? But they don't fear me. But what we want from our children is that they grow up to love us and honor us, not out of fear, but out of love and respect. That's what we want. And, and in fact, we want nothing more than for them to be like us, only better. I'd like, I'd like them to not only learn from my mistakes, I'd like them to learn from my mistakes and grow beyond me, be wiser, stronger, 
better, more godly, more like Jesus than I could ever be. That's what I want for them. Whether that'll happen or not, it's not up to me. That's what I want for them. So good people, bad people, it's important. Won't get you all the way. The law, it's important. Won't get you all the way. Won't really get you past high school. There's something else that has to come in. And that's, let's, let's call it, so I, 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 since the video thing, I spend a lot of time with psychologists. And they have all their own vocabulary. One of their vocabularies is attachment. So learned this from a friend of mine. So attachment starts like right away. That baby is born, but you know, when that baby is born, that's not the beginning of that baby. And all of you know that far better than I do. That baby spent nine months inside of mom. And what the scientists tell us is that if mom and dad are together and talking, that baby comes out and guess what? They already know the voices of mom and dad. And they've already started knitting together speech, even a year before they can talk. And that baby comes out. You know how far a baby can see? The distance between the breast and the mother's eyes. And what does that baby do those first few months of life? They just sit there and they look at mama. And mama sits there and looks at them and they just bond. And that's why, I mean, adoption is a wonderful thing. But when that break is made between mother and child, there's a wound there that never fully heals. And we didn't know that until like just a few decades ago. Because we didn't know that right away with nursing, that mother and child, they are bonding. And then if dad's around, they hear dad's voice. And it's going to take a few more months to sort of build a relationship with dad. But that baby's going to be able to see further and further and further. And pretty soon the baby's going to see, and we all know this because that baby's sitting there. And what do we do with the baby? We come right in on him, right? And we get out, and then you know, the kid's all looking around. And then at some time, we figure out eye contact. And then... And then, oh, oh, we're seeing each other. And then we smile. And what does the baby do? It doesn't know what a smile is, but when the baby smiles, you know, who knows what they're doing with their face? Suddenly they're getting positive reinforcement with that smile. And then the kid learns. And then suddenly, smile, smile, smile all over the place. Every adult that comes by, the baby's like, smile, smile. Can I get that attention? Can I get that eye contact? on and on and on and on, that builds and builds, and then strangers and all of development. But that's attachment. And then, of course, when the part of the reason teenagers, well, happens, starts happening at two, but you get two teenagers, and they're, they're bonding with their group instead of with their mom and dad, and that's really hard, and that's why parents are like, I want my kids around a good group, because they're going to pick a lot up from this group. They're turning away from me, but all that stuff inside for those first years, they're in there, and on and on and on and on. But it's attachment. And, and, so, and so part of what the law is supposed to give is, well, mom and dad, when I was small, they gave me good laws. They gave me good rules. 
they're really helpful. But the goal of the law is not just obedience because there's something deeper than obedience. The, the, the goal of the law is attachment. Okay. Back to chapter 6. So what shall we say? Shall we continue to sin in order that grace may increase? Hmm. Shall I continue to speed so that the cop can continue to give me warnings? Is that a smart strategy? You know what's going to happen next time I speed in the city of Sacramento? If I get stopped, the dude on the motorcycle might be a different dude. Doesn't matter. You know, license and registration. They're going to go back to their motorcycle. They're going to pick up that little mic and they're going to call in my license number. Now, they're checking to make sure my car is registered. When they call in my license number, you know what's going to come up? Paul Vanderclay, December 2022, stopped Freeport Boulevard doing 65 and a 50. The cop gave me a warning, but you know what? He wrote it down and it got logged into a computer. And so the next guy who stops me is going to say, well, I gave him a warning last time. Going to get a ticket this time. Let's see how paying $300 to the city of Sacramento for nothing feels to him. Plus a point, plus higher insurance. Okay, well, let's say I think, oh, yeah, I'm going to continue to speeding so that grace abounds. How about the third time I get stopped? Guess what happens then? Two points. More penalties on my insurance. Now suddenly I'm starting to think about points. How many points do they give you until they start taking your license away? That's Paul says, um, yeah, this idea of sinning so that grace may abound, not a good strategy. May it never be. Meganoito, he says. May it never be. Don't, don't think this way. Don't think that if, in fact, grace abounds because of what we do in our evil hearts with the law, that that's a good strategy. That's a dumb idea. That's as stupid as me thinking, I'm going to keep speeding in Sacramento so that grace may abound. No, grace won't abound. <laughs> Points and fines and end of the privilege of driving will abound if I keep that strategy. Or do you not know as many, or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What? Remember when I said that the point of the law with mom is attachment and honor and trust? That's still the point of the law. But the point isn't keeping the law. The point is attachment to make us more like God. To make us godly, holy, to put us in alignment with God. Okay. But what does that have to do with 
death, and baptism. In the Christian Reformed Church, most of the baptism liturgies talk about baptism as washing away of sin. That's an absolutely legitimate metaphor. But when I read Romans 6, I thought, wait a minute, what's the relationship between baptism and death? Because there's no washing images here. He's talking about death. And you've heard me preach on this for a while. I don't know if you you picked up on it or not. I had to think about what baptism was in relationship to death. Because we are united with Christ in his death by our baptism. That's really strange. Because all of the baptisms that I'd seen in the Christian Reformed Church were, well, the ways I baptized my children. You know, you're all there in the church service, and, you know, mom is feel a little better now after giving birth, and you bring that baby forward, and you go in front and baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if you read the baptismal form of the Christian before, you hear washing away of sin. And I think, well, this gets actually into a fight in the Netherlands about baptismal regeneration that I'm not going to get into in this case. But when I read Romans 6, I said, but I need to understand how baptism is related to death. And that's when I began thinking about this very ancient idea of ordeal. And if I read in the book of Daniel, the fiery furnace. And if I watch Monty Python's witch test, and if I see in the book of Daniel, the lion's den, and if I understand in Christianity the crucifixion and resurrection, a light went on in my head. All of these are ordeals. And there's lots of ordeals in the ancient world. So there's, there's, in fact, an ordeal in the Mosaic Law. So a guy is suspicious of his wife. And, yeah, he's always known she's sort of a flirt. But, boy, she and this neighbor over here, every time I see them together, they're sharing glances. She's giggling. There's a lot of touch. Anything going on there? There's a strange passage where they take the sweepings of the temple, if I remember it correctly, they put it in water and they stir it up and they give it to her to drink. And it's an ordeal. Because if she drinks it and she's okay, guess what? She's a faithful wife. But if she's unfaithful and she drinks it, guess what? Bad things. Now, that's sort of like the Monty Python witch thing, right? 
The whole, the whole joke is, okay, so you got a woman and you think she's a witch. So you throw her in the river. And that's how you'll know. Well, how will we know? Well, if she sinks, she's not a witch. And if she floats, she's a witch. Why did my Monty Python turn that into a joke? You're dead either way. <laughs> either you float and they take you out of the water and burn you. <laughs> or if you sink, you drown, and they're like, oh, well, that's too bad. <laughs> I mean, that's why Monty Python was laughing about it. But it's an ordeal. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. If you don't bow to the image, we're going to throw you in this furnace. And they stoked the furnace so hot that even those who threw them in the servant in the furnace died. The furnace, you can't get anywhere near this furnace. It's going to kill you. And then what happens? And inside the furnace with them, there's not three people, but four. And one looks like a son of the gods. And so Nebuchadnezzar cries out into the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He knew that their God saved them. Come out. So the three come out, not the fourth. The three come out and they said, their hair wasn't singed. Their clothing didn't even smell of smoke. You go camping and you come back from camping and you know you got to get that smell of smoke out of you. And they don't even smell like smoke. And suddenly Nebuchadnezzar is like, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must be the most high God. That's what the whole story of the book of Daniel is about. All these ordeals, all these tests, all these showing that God is God. Daniel goes into the lion's den. Darius didn't want him to go down there. So then the next morning, Darius comes, says, Daniel, what does he ask? Was your God able to save you? You just have the imagination that Daniel's sitting back. He's leaning against one line, got his foot up on another line, and he's petting the third one right here. Yeah, I'm doing just fine. You know? And then, you know, put down a rope, haul him up out of the pit. And then King passes a new law that, guess what? The ones who accuse Daniel, guess where they're going? Into the lion's den. And what does the text say? They don't even hit the ground. And the lions have devoured them. These are ordeals. They're tests. They're, they're tests to see if God who controls the wild. Now notice all the elements of this text. Elements of this test are wild animals. They're fire. They're water. They're, you know, yeah. who wants to sweep up the house and put it in water and drink it? Yeah, that's, you know, we all know that's, that's a recipe for getting sick. Yeah, go ahead.
Right. The question is, and that's an old question between believer baptism, because believer baptism is a, something that happens after they believe. After what happens with baptism is, well, if, for example, you read carefully, um, remember Paul in Philippi when he's in prison and the jailer, there's an earthquake, so there's another ordeal of such. Paul's in prison being tortured and there's an earthquake and they're all freed. And none of them run away, and the jailer's about to kill himself. And Paul says, don't take your life. We're all here. And the jailer takes him in, washes his wounds, gives him something to eat. And then the jailer and his household become baptized. It's because if you look at 1 Corinthians 10, it's very clear that Moses and all of Israel fall under the baptism of the Red Sea and the Jordan. And so the idea is that baptism in this sense is a community. And in that community, children are included in the community. Children of believers are not of the world. They are of the community of Christ. And just like, and this follows circumcision because circumcision was the sign of the community. And so you didn't wait to circumcise people until they were old enough to make a statement of profession. And part of the wobbliness about waiting for people to make professions, people in their professions, not so reliable. And so actually infant baptism sort of goes back to this older idea of God as the ruler of all eventuality being the one who finally saves. Because you can find lots of people out there who are baptized as adults who are just as wayward as people out there who are baptized as children. In other words, baptism is not so much what we say to God. It's what God through the church says to us. That's not a bad way to think about it. but. It won't, um, but if you think that way, there'll be other further difficulties later, later on. Because you'll find, well, they weren't protected by their baptism. I'll get to you in a second, Delphine. Um, my answer to that is this. When you find a couple who does a reaffirmation of vows in sort of a second wedding, well, that can be meaningful, but almost every time I see it, I think, right, something happened. Did one of them have an affair? Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that, but in a sense, what that second ceremony says is the first one really didn't take. And that's why the church has consistently said you only need to be baptized once. Now, just like with a marriage, you should live up to that baptism. 
but you don't really need to go under the water again. Just like if your marriage is rocky, would a second ceremony help? Maybe, but the church has, has always said, but in a sense, what you're saying to God is, you can't make good on your promise. And a second baptism kind of says to God, you didn't make good on your promise. And I think actually the, the fault lies on our end. So in other words, if you really want, if, you've, if your marriage is struggling, now again, the, it's, an imperfect, it's an imperfect metaphor because usually when there's a problem in the marriage, it's both parties. And so redoing your baptism sort of says, well, and, and again, this gets, sacraments are finally God speaking to us. And so basically what we're recommending people do is remember your baptism. Because if even later in life, you are finding your attachment to God far better, that all, already speaks of God's faithfulness to you. Delphine. Yeah. And, and that's why, so marriage isn't supposed to be a contract. It's supposed to be a covenant. And baptism is, is an expression of God's covenant to us. And when I have bad attachment with God, it's on my side. Delphine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yeah, but that's so then sometimes people will come to me and they'd like me to rebaptize them. And that's that I won't do. And I won't do it for this reason because I'll say to them, I think God has been faithful to you. <laughs> I don't think what you really need from God is for God to speak again. I think what we really need to do is for us to listen better and to reaffirm. And part of the way, I mean, really. How we reaffirm our relationship with God is obedience. So, well, that's a good question. Okay, we're out of time. We got to land the plane. So, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, in the in the course of this world, there's a lot of up and down. And and the message that we hear is you are faithful. And we aren't. That's the story of Israel. The story of Noah. It's the story of the church. But Lord, we believe that we don't live by virtue of just how tightly we can cling to you, but how good your grip is on us. So help us, Lord, to grip back. Help us, Lord, to, to honor your covenant with obedience. Help us, Lord, to be the kind of children that honor you because we love you and not because we're afraid of you. 
So hear our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.